Hello, all. This is a first episode of a series of podcasts that was originally the framework of our Sunday evening series this past spring. I've tried recording these things numerous ways, typically live, and it never quite worked out because people would have questions. Uh, the questions wouldn't get picked up on the recording. Uh, I would tell too many jokes that were weird, whatever it may be. And the way I build the series uh, this past spring, and what I'm trying to do now in a more, I don't know, I guess podcast-friendly form, was a series on the book of Daniel, even as we never actually made it to the book of Daniel, except in snippets here and there. And once we start meeting again in the fall, we will actually take up Daniel head on. No, what I wound up doing was really uh, preparatory work for Daniel. And really what I mean by preparatory is learning how to read the Old Testament on its own terms according to its literary patterns and with its cultural assumptions in place. So to that end, we focus most of our time this spring on the book of Jonah, because that book anticipates through the judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel and her captivity in Assyria, what would actually happen with the southern kingdom of Judah and its capital of Jerusalem, in particular with the temple, and in turn, it gives context to the book of Daniel. But it wasn't merely that I wanted us to get our, I don't know, historical chronology straight, though there's that, and we'll do some of that next time. It's that I wanted us as a congregation to learn how to read Jonah properly, with all its strange details about Jonah fleeing God's presence, the sea, the great fish, why Jonah was angry at God for being gracious and full of steadfast loving kindness to Nineveh, and the meaning of the plant and its withering in chapter 4. My purpose was that if we if we treat Jonah as a test case, then we can learn how to read not only Jonah properly, but really the Old Testament as a whole. And in turn, we will be able to make far better sense of the book of Daniel and not reduce it to, say, morality tales paired with some confusing visions and prophecies that we don't really know what to do with. Far from it, we want to be able to see how the book of Daniel sets the movement of history from essentially Jonah all the way to Jesus, which, by the way, is an era of salvation history not well known, if it's known at all, by Christians in our circles. And along the way, during that study, we looked at Genesis 1 through 11, moving from the creation of Eve all the way to the Tower of Babel and Abraham's calling out of Ur of the Chaldeans, in order to get a better sense of how the Bible understands cities like Babylon or Sodom and Gomorrah or Egypt in the book of Exodus, all three of which take on a recurring thematic role all the way through the book of Revelation. That said, this initial post then focuses on questions of history or more so how we think about history and what history is, as well as a little bit about literary structure in the Hebrew Bible in terms of types or typology and the problems we face as modernists, that is, people living in late modernity and a post-Enlightenment culture that's been deeply affected by radical individualism, the scientific movement, or really we could say scientism, and how we have learned to read the Bible in light of such things. Now, there's a lot more I could and want to say that I'm what I'm going to say in this post. 
So for you who really want to go deeper, just know I'm leaving a lot on the editing room floor and I'm barely touching on some of the issues I just mentioned. But for the rest of you, maybe that's, that's good. <laughs> and everything I just said sounds a little dry or academic. And you know what, it, it probably is gonna be a little bit, but I'm gonna do my best to be as clear as possible in order to help us read and understand the biblical text and in turn God himself better. Well, to start with one of those dry academic questions, let's ask a seemingly obvious question, though I don't think it's obvious at all. How do we think about history? Or perhaps maybe more poignantly, what is history? When we think of history, that is, modern people living in Western culture, we tend to think of it as a sequential order of important or memorable past events that progresses in a linear fashion towards some end. So if we were to talk about World War II, for example, we would pick some important spot, perhaps after war, World War I, and, and picking a starting point is always a tricky business, and we would then form a narrative of cause and effects and, and, and events and structure it as a unified whole, saying this is the story of how this led to this. And of course, the question is, well, how do we decide what is important or not? How do we decide what should be included as a factor in the story? And it's not at all obvious what must be included in that story. So for example, clearly, we might say it's obvious that Hitler or Churchill would be important figures to talk about in terms of World War II, but we most likely would not talk about their grandparents or their cousins unless they were directly related to causes and effects of the war. Otherwise, they're irrelevant to the story. I mean, after all, nobody cares about George Washington's great-grandchildren, and it's not because they aren't, say, worthwhile humans. It's rather because they're just not part of the structure of the main story, and so they're, they're irrelevant to the telling of it. But what goes unspoken is that we assume that history is going somewhere and that there is such a thing as progress. It's why people will say things like, I'm on the right side of history. Well, who says there's a right side and, and who decides what counts as being right? Perhaps the easiest example of this is the hubris that so often accompanies the scientific movement that our, our knowledge will continue to progress until we have a clear and total understanding of the world. This, of course, is a statement of faith. And no matter how much technological innovation the last 200 years of Western culture has produced, it is not at all clear that we are progressing or getting better, whatever that means, let alone that we are anywhere closer to the truth. After all, by what standard are we measuring our progress? And by what standard do we know that we actually have the truth? The notion of progress is not a clear and obvious truth any more than the notion of human rights or the dignity and worth of every individual is an obvious and clear truth. No, these are faith statements inherited from Christianity, by the way, and given particular shape and form in Western European contexts over the last 1,000 years. Case in point, ancient cultures didn't see history as linear or progressive. They saw it as cyclical as working in cycles, much as Hinduism or Buddhism sees the world today. And what's more, it's only under the influence of Christianity that science could even emerge and make its fundamental assumption that the universe has a rational order 
and that the human mind is capable of discerning that order. So our sense of what history actually is and that it is moving towards some goal or purpose is directly influenced from Christianity, even as secular academics, both of the historian and scientist type, reject the God from which this belief comes. So in one sense, as Christians, culturally, we already have a disposition that that is ready-made for how the Bible thinks about history. But in another sense, the last 400 years has made our understanding of that history, that biblical history, more difficult. Well, think of the, the question this way. Is a book historically accurate if it goes out of chronological order? What if it is selective in the events it includes? What if it purposely tells some of those events then out of order in order to make its point? Well, I think most of us assume, and we can thank German historiographers and philosophers from 300 years ago for this, that unless something is written in exact chronological order with as little flair as possible, with as much relevant detail as possible, It's not properly historical. This is why when students encounter their first real work of historiography, it reads like a thousand-page instruction manual. Added to this, the modern Western assumption is that the only things that count as evidence or as explanation for why something happened are, as a matter of course, this-worldly. Again, thank you, Germans. And this is That is, any explanation that points to God or the miraculous or the spiritual are automatically disallowed up front, which, as a matter of course, rules out virtually all historical texts previous to the 1600s as reliable accounts. And as the thinking goes, because I have never witnessed someone raised from the dead, and I think that makes my experience of the world pretty common, then as a matter of course, I have to rule out the possibility of resurrection altogether, no matter the eyewitness accounts about it in the ancient world. It's my experience that matters most. So if I cannot in some sense, typically by way of scientific verification, and that's purposeful, science has set itself up as trying to be the standard for verification. So if I cannot in some sense account for the event or the action in ways that are amenable amenable to modern ways of thinking, then I have no way of proving the event actually happened. Now, there's two issues at work in this. First, science is very good at measuring naturally repeatable events that happen consistently over time. Things like the length of days, or the temperature of a given area, or whatever. Historical events, however, are not naturally repeating events that happen consistently over time. No, they are unique, one-time events. So, for example, Lazarus was not raised by Jesus three times, let alone 3,000 times. He was raised once. There was no scientist on hand to verify the event according to whatever standards he would think would be relevant for that. Even as this event was witnessed by many people, if not hundreds of people, Science is no more useful for proving whether Lazarus was raised from the dead than it is in telling us of whether or not Lincoln gave his Gettysburg Gettysburg Address. So what goes unspoken is that these rules for what counts as evidence or explanations came out of a time period when intellectuals in Europe were openly calling into question Christianity 
and it's God, and of course it's scriptures, even as they wanted to keep all the same Christian ethics. This is the same time period when the scientific enterprise purposely divorced itself from the church and in turn ruled that things like miracles or the testimony of scripture are de facto out of bounds as credible evidence. They're ruled out of bounds before the game even starts. So in other words, the rules for the historical understanding of the world were purposely rigged to disallow the Bible as a true historical account of the world. And ever since, some Christians have been laboring very hard to prove otherwise, often trying to use scientific standards to prove the truth of Scripture, not realizing that the game was rigged from the start on purpose. Now, I'm not against science or the work of secular historians, and I obviously make use of some of their works and have greatly benefited from them, but I also don't think Christians are compelled to play by their rules, and I certainly don't think the God who made the heavens and the earth has to measure up to the arbitrary standards modern secular academics put to him. Well, I digress. My point is that much of the Bible is written as historical accounts, but it does not meet modern historical standards that are purposely in place to reject much of what the Bible claims is true. And what's more, modern scholars don't often understand the way in which Hebrew literature was actually written, and so they miss and dismiss those Hebrew writings as historical accounts as they are. So case in point, many critical scholars and historians give the book of Daniel a very late date, long after it claims to have been written, primarily because the prophecies we find in them in particular, the prophecies concerning the four major empires that were to follow, that they were right. They were true. So you can actually follow in the Bible the movement from the Assyrians, which that's with the book of Jonah and the judgment there, to the Babylonians, to the Persians, to the Greeks, and the Seleucids that kind of come after them, to the Romans. So in other words, by modern standards, the book of Daniel can't possibly be true because of its miraculous content, but it certainly can't have been written when it was claimed to have been written because the events it predicted actually happened. Funny how that works. Now, to be sure, the Bible does think in terms of progress in the sense that God is moving history according to His will, and that history finds its fulfillment and its climax and its meaning in Jesus Christ. But the way the Bible develops this movement of history while progressing towards a definite end, is not exactly the linear form we would expect. In fact, it looks more like if we were going to visualize it, kind of like looping spirals rather than a straight line. The way biblical scholars talk about this movement uh, is in terms of types or typology. And typology is a loaded word, and over the course of uh, this series of podcasts, we, we will get clearer on its meaning, and we certainly will more so when we get into the book of Daniel in the fall. But in the simplest version, and, and by the way, I am reducing down a whole lot of information to just this one little thought. In its simplest version, a type is a pattern or a figure or a series of events that is repeated in various forms throughout the Bible. So for example, David is a messianic type that looks forward to Jesus, who is the Messiah. So David's life anticipates Jesus's life. It's why Paul in Romans compares the first Adam of Genesis 1 through 3 with Jesus, the second Adam 
and why the temptation of Jesus, for example, is structured as a replay on the temptation of Adam in the garden, as well as the temptation of Israel in the wilderness after the Exodus. Noah and Solomon are both seen as new types of Adams, though they clearly fail like the first Adam, even as Israel as a nation is seen as a type of Adam that also fails. In Genesis 3, Eve seeing the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, taking it in disobedience to God, anticipates and informs David seeing Bathsheba and taking her in disobedience to God. And both were examples of seeing, of making evaluation, and taking something that was good, but not theirs to take. Now, we can do this over and over again. We can do this with the movement of the Garden of Eden as the sanctuary where God met with his people, that is Adam and Eve, and trace that same movement through Abraham, say, worshiping at Shechem, to Moses at the burning bush, to Israel returning to Sinai to worship, to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the Mount of Olives with Jesus himself, and then the New Jerusalem of Revelation. We can go on and on with these examples, and we will as we get into the book of Jonah. What is in view with these types, though, is very much like what a good musical composer does with a theme, how he will introduce it, restate it, maybe invert it, manipulate it, vary it, and and that sort of thing. That's exactly what God does as well over the course of history with many different types and figures. And as an aside, at the end of this podcast, I've included the first movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony as, as a brilliant example of how this works. God, of course, is a far more brilliant composer than Beethoven, as good as Beethoven was. My point is that while the Bible does have a similar view of history to modern people, the way the Bible thinks about history involves a literary structure that can be very challenging to modern readers of the Bible that goes against what we assume a historical text is like. Not least of these problems is caused by the fact that most evangelical Christians unintentionally do not take the Old Testament seriously, let alone do not know how to make sense of the Old Testament and how it functions. So in a certain sense, many Christians aren't all that different from the ancient heretic Marcion, who who cut most of the Old Testament of the Bible and kept the parts of the New Testament that he liked. I'm not saying they're heretics, I'm just saying... They just don't know what to do with the Old Testament. But if you are not familiar with the Old Testament, the New Testament, while it's still understandable, it loses its depth. After all, how can you understand what Paul means about Jesus as the second Adam if you don't understand who the first Adam was? So, for example, why was it important that Jesus be tested in the wilderness? Is there any significance to Jesus going on the side of a mountain and delivering a sermon on the ethics of his kingdom to his disciples? Or are these just random details that just happen to be there? It's why when many Christians think about the book of Jonah, for example, the primary issue they think about is what? Well, you know, it's the big fish, and whether or not Jonah could have actually survived three days in its belly. And they are right to see the big fish as a big deal. It's a living symbol of what was not only coming for the northern kingdom of Israel, but for Jesus himself. But that's not what many Christians are actually concerned about. If you're mostly concerned about whether Jonah was actually in the fish or not, 
and in turn the truthfulness of Scripture rides on that answer, then, well, German intellectuals have set the terms of the game for you, and you're reading the meaning of the book of Jonah. And by the way, that Jonah was actually swallowed by the fish, and he was, and maybe even died in its belly, and we could talk about that. While that is absolutely true, it is not the big deal about the book. That's not the big issue of the book of Jonah, and it's not even close. Likewise, when many Christians think about the book of Daniel, they think of Daniel in the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And you know what? That's good. Like the big fish of Jonah, those are key texts for understanding the people of God in exile in Babylon. But that's not typically how modern people, modern Christians in our circles read them. Often, and it's common to hear pastors preach something something along these lines, because we don't know how to read the text, the event is, or events are reduced to morality tales. So don't be a reluctant evangelist like Jonah. Have faith in what seems like an untenable circumstance, like a fiery furnace or a lion's den. And by the way, what were they doing with fiery furnaces and lion's dens in Babylon? Or like David versus Goliath, you just got to face your giants. Well, I can tell you right now, that's not what those passages mean. And again, it's not even close. So for next time, we're going to start learning how to read the Bible better on its own terms. Uh, and in turn, we're going to try to work against some of our modern hang-ups by looking at the book of Jonah as a case study. And it's four short chapters and can be read fairly quickly. So let me encourage you before next time, just go read it and read it multiple times. We're going to go through it, I guarantee you, multiple times over the course of this short little pod series. So next time, we're going to look at specific historical stuff in Scripture surrounding the first verses of chapter 1, especially as it concerns the question, why did Jonah run from God? More on this next time. Thank you.